Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi everyone, you're listening to the Third Coast Podcast. I'm Dennis Funk. We're happy to say that this year, Third Coast reached a milestone. We've been an independent organisation sharing audio joy for a full five years, and it's all thanks to listeners and makers like you. There's no stopping us now, but we need your help to get started on year six and beyond. Your donation, no matter the amount, goes a long way. For example, your gift goes towards licensing the stories you hear on this show, so when you support us, you also support the producers responsible for these audio gems. If you make a donation by December the 22nd, you'll be entered to win a brand new pair of Sennheiser earbuds, which would be perfect to tuck under one of our new Pidgey-themed knit hats and listen to your favourite shows all this winter. Just visit our homepage, thirdcoastfestival.org, where you'll find a link and many thanks. Also, just a reminder that we're searching for two interns in Chicago, one to help with this year's Short Docs Challenge and the other to help on ReSound and this podcast. For details and deadlines, visit our website. Speaking of which, our current intern, Annie Kostakis, who produced most of this week's show, is here, and I'm going to let her finish up this week's announcements. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. This week on the podcast, we have a brand new episode of ReSound. Enjoy. Turn right. Make U-turn. Recalculating. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. The possibility of getting lost is the most interesting possibility <laughs> at every point on an on a adventure. Great radio is everywhere, but you can't be, which is why we collect, curate, and bring you the best audio stories available worldwide. We search high and low, near and far, on the internet, the airwaves, podcasts. We will tax our GPS to its limit, just so that we can bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. And I set the alarm clock. You know, it says 7.30. I said, you know what? I'm robbing a bank tomorrow morning. I should probably wake up a little earlier. It's easy to go off course. On the road, in life. I lost my way in college, dropped out, gained 30 pounds, and spent my Saturday nights watching reruns of The Love Boat and eating buttered noodles. I've also been known to obliviously drive hours in the wrong direction. Sometimes these detours can lead to happy accidents, interesting roadside attractions, maturity, and wisdom. Sometimes, not so much. We all have our stories. Today on ReSound, we have two. One about a GPS, a Zen teacher, and a woman with a terrible sense of direction, and another involving a young, upper-class bank robber. Stay with us. The ubiquity of the GPS actually makes it hard to lose your way. Unless your phone is out of batteries and your car, like mine, doesn't have one. When I get my next car, the GPS will probably be a standard feature. And the good old Rand McNally 8x12 Road Atlas will go the way of the rotary phone. For most people, it already has. With the GPS, sure, you may always know which way to turn. But do you really know where you're going? That's what producer Lee Redfern wants to find out in our first story, This Is Not The Way Home. 
Hello, darling. So what's the address, baby? I've no idea. Okay. Well, that's a good start. <laughs> that's one of those streets. I know where we're going. Oh, do you? I believe that everybody have got a gift. We sometimes don't recognise it. It's much easier when you've got kind of obvious things like perfect pitch or a beautiful voice you don't recognize that you're gifted but I believe that everybody have got something sometimes we probably spend all our life to figure out what is it my friend Andre got me thinking about direction I've got a gift as well and it's a good sense of direction I never feel lost in the forest. I never feel lost in any way because I know where I should go. I was intrigued because my experience is so different. I have a bad sense of direction. Never mind navigating the forest. I can get lost travelling to places I've been before. Topographical orientation is basically one's ability to find their way from one place to another in a large-scale environment like the home, the workplace or their neighbourhood or their city they live in. Topographical disorientation is basically an inability to do this. I don't want to further the gender myth that women alone can't navigate. I know plenty of men who are as capable as I am at getting lost. And I know it sounds perverse, but it was his lack of direction which drew me to my partner. One of our early courting rituals included getting lost together. We'd chat as we drove onto a freeway, then enjoy each other's company as we looked for a safe place to turn the car in the direction we actually wanted to travel. Of course, the things that draw us to people can be the ones that eventually drive us crazy. What do you reckon, left or right here? I have no idea. As ever, darling. As ever. No, listen, don't put it on like that. The possibility of getting lost is the most interesting possibility. <laughs> At every point on a, on an adventure, it's like all the kind of secret interest is that you might get lost. It's what creates the exciting tension, you know. It is what creates the life in the situation. So when you get what you didn't expect, it can be so much more interesting. And if you have strong expectations, you tend to get much more like what you expected. Everything keeps conforming to this kind of little narrow set of rather blinkered possibilities. That's Susan Murphy, writer, broadcaster and Zen teacher. I'm trying for a more Zen approach, to relax with my weak topographical orientation skills and enjoy the ride. Then Satnap woman enters our lives. Take the second exit. Unbeknown to me, she's been travelling with my partner for days. And although I don't know the cause right away, I immediately recognise the glint in his eye. He's driving, she's navigating. Turn left. While for us, such an arrangement has lately lent itself to tension and occasional shouting, the experience has bonded the two. He has nothing but praise for her, and she has nothing but the same repetitive, reassuring platitudes. After 200 metres at the roundabout... I dislike her immediately. Take the second exit. Why the second exit, I ask? Why not just say, go straight ahead? And what happens if you miss the turn? What does she have to say then, I want to know. After 300 metres, turn right. Well, that's the beauty of it, my partner responds. She doesn't remonstrate. She just recalculates. Every time I go to catch a train, an image stares down at me. In an age of unrealistic role models for women, with so much focused on visual perfection, Satnav Woman is something else. Satnav woman never criticises, Satnav woman never judges. 
And as a disembodied voice, she looks like whoever you want her to look like. In a Stepford wife kind of a way, it's terrifying. I'm determined to be adult about it and try and learn from Satnav Woman. After all, it's good to know how to take advice. And although Satnav Woman seems perfect, she does have her limitations. She sometimes gets it wrong, but then your traditional maps and compasses also have their problems and pleasures. There's a really nice story about a map story, actually, about getting lost and about the fact that the map we think we have is almost beside the point. It's actually possibly an apocryphal story from World War II. There was a Gurkha soldier attached to a group of British soldiers and uh, he'd become very good friends with his captain and or his commanding officer had given him at some point a map of the London Underground. And you know what they're like? They're absolutely abstract. They could be a circuit diagram for the back of a fridge or something. <laughs> so he got lost from his company. This is in Burma, an, an unmapped pocket of some jungle gorge or something. And he was lost for days. They wrote him off. They thought he'd been captured and or eaten by tigers or almost anything could have happened to him. But then he staggered out of the bush into the camp. And they received him happily because they'd all grown very fond of him. They said, how did, you, how did you find your way back? He said, it was all right, I had the map. And he whipped out the map of the London Underground. <laughs> and he had used it. And it had got him back to them. <laughs> Topographical orientation is a really complex skill. In order to do it successfully, you need to be able to do a lot of sub-skills that lead to successful navigation of your environment. So the first thing you need to be able to do is recognise and understand the things you see in the environment. So objects, familiar intersections, landmarks, buildings. You need to be able to not only see them and recognise them but you need to be able to process where they are in space. So you need to know that this particular object is to the left of another or further away than another and how far away the distances are. Because when you're finding your way around an environment you're using your whole visual field and you have to process a lot of different information as you move. This kind of visual memory or a sense of north, south and west and you feel right, feel confident where you should go. And I remember this caused certain tension between me and my father. He came with me uh, when I was uh, a child quite a lot and he always got the compass, sometimes it's even a couple of them and he checked the direction and he was very kind of upset when sometimes we get lost and with all this compass and all these kind of things, he can't find the way back. And it was a couple of times when he was lost and give up. He just asked me, and for me it was just easy, point the direction and we get back <laughs> in the spot we wanted to. So, I don't know, It's uh, I presume heard his... Uh, feeling that he is an adult and I'm just a boy. Did he change his attitude over time? Like, did he get to the stage where he'd just ask you? No, it's just, uh, you should know my father. <laughs> uh, in this way, he wouldn't ask this question. Turn right. I realise that a lot of my stress around navigation stems from... Procrastinator. <laughs> and look what he achieved. I mean, he just did the things that were most important to him at every given moment, really. He only painted about 18 paintings, but they're all beyond compare. <laughs> Just that he didn't want to go on painting paintings, he wanted to think about other things. He followed the Tao in a sense of his own mind. But 
This sense of you know needing to set a plan and set goals and achieve milestones and so on, there's a tightness of the heart in all of that, I think, and, and so much is missed. The fertility of, of a given situation is missed potentially because you're just looking for the one small thing that you're directing yourself towards. The ability to find your way around an environment is an innate ability in humans and also in many animals. And if you think about it, it's a really important skill in evolutionary terms. That doesn't mean to say that we can't be born with different degrees of ability in that area. Yep. And left or right here. I think it's right, isn't it? Yep. Turn right. My friends have a pragmatic solution to my difficulties with Satnav Woman. What you need to do is change it to a male voice when he's not looking. But just quietly changing her voice to another from the menu somehow seems excessive and wrong. The boys here, they've tried all of them and we've all ended up with Ken. Like taking a hit out on my partner's new best friend just because she happens to be a woman. Ken's the Australian male and he's, he sounds very credible. Which leads to the whole question of ethics and morals. If our sense of direction is innate, what about our moral compass, the internal navigation system, which helps us decide the roads we take in life? Let's call integrity the true moral compass, the final organ that forms in a human being. And we don't always mature into our fullness, so we could look at you know, recent politics and look at the difference between George Bush and uh, Obama. I mean, there's such a profound sense of moral... that One is a fully-fledged moral being and the other is not. And so, yes, I think it's possible for this, this to be stillborn and not ever develop. It actually has to be wanted. It has to be called out by, by I suppose, by your elders, by the people who are ahead of you. They have to be able to say, you know to actually call you on a, on a failing. Otherwise, there's a sense there that no one is being asked to be a full adult human being. Trauma consultants will rush in and save you from an experience as soon as possible instead of allowing it to sort of form, to mineralise your bones a bit, you know? Because you know, difficult experiences are what make us... I'm going to go the back way through Stanmore because this is just going to be horrible the whole way. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about this gift now? Is it a useful gift? Look, uh, I ask myself the same question over and over again just because in certain circumstances this would be very profitable gift if I would be hunter or if I would be, I don't know, person who live in the forest. I find it it's very amusing because... You don't need this sense of direction at all. You know your bus stop, uh, railway train going in just one direction. So in this way, I ask myself several times, is it useful or not? I still don't have an answer for this question, but it's I live with it comfortably. So. I guess I need to make my peace with an imperfect piece of technology. As a friend points out, when I bitterly itemise Satnav Woman's many qualities, she has no real conversational skills. And ultimately, does life have to be approached as a journey? Journey does imply a movement through time and space, as though that's what a life is. And it sometimes strikes me that, you know, we live on a round planet. You cannot get outside the circle of everything, luckily. I remember once a teacher tried to explain how maps are a kind of flattened sphere and gave the analogy of peel an orange and then try and flatten that down on paper and you'll have something like the Mercator projection of the Earth. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a really strange thing to do. <laughs> Such a distortion, just to achieve a flat piece of paper with direction on it. So, undistorted, 
by that desire to flatten things out and, and control, you know, the north, the south, east and west of it all, what do we have then? We have something that is in eternally spherical. And then you have a very different understanding. You see that you come from somewhere that you can't possibly name and you're going to go there. And then is death so frightening because you've already come from there, you know? When you look at it as a journey, it's a very disappointing journey. <laughs> it ends up in a terrible place. <laughs> hill. hill, yep, downhill, that's right. Follow the course of the road for three kilometres. <laughs> yeah, we're in a car park. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> This is Not the Way Home was produced by Lee Redfern for Radio Tonic and RN's Creative Audio Unit from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. You can listen to any episode of ReSound or peruse our library of thousands of amazing audio stories from around the world at our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Support for ReSound comes from Transistor Chicago, offering a curated selection of art, electronics, records, books, and more, as well as live performance events and regular film screenings. More information at TransistorChicago.com. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Maxi. Today, we're listening to stories about going off course. Tom Justice came from a well-to-do family. He was the senior class president at a swanky high school and a very accomplished athlete. And then, all went awry. From former ReSound producer Katie Mingle, here's Choir Boy. Okay. Well, by the way, I haven't looked at this in like six to eight years, so it's, this, is, this is odd. Has anybody noticed the electricity and life brimming over with me? I haven't felt this good since, well, a long time. Can people read it on my face? It seems that they can. Playing in my head all week has been this dramatic, slow-motion montage of a spectacular baseball sequence one where I'm coming out of the dugout, adjusting my batter's helmet, and handed a bat. The roar from the crowds is startling. I can hear what each of them is individually saying. Women scream, you can do it! Men yell, go for it, baby! I wrote that because I knew myself that as the years would go by, I would lose the pathology of the way I was thinking. You can do it. This is it. You're on the right path. Go get yours. This may not be right, but all I wanted to do was rob one bank and just to feel what this was like. That's all I wanted. This may sound strange, but I I looked at it in really practical terms. I said, 
Well, I would like to do it this year. Let me look at my schedule. If you want this experience, it's got to happen between these two months because after that, you need to buckle down for grad school. I grew up in Libertyville, Illinois, which is about 35, 40 miles north of the city of Chicago. It's where people grow up straight and right and are polite, and so was I, to a point. But high school was pretty good. Popular kid, got elected as class president senior year. My general public persona is square, nice guy. Oh, that's the type of guy I want my sister to date. But I wanted something else. I wanted to be something else. A friend of mine and her family, they used to go to watch the bike races at Northbrook Velodrome, and they simply asked if I would like to go with them. You know, they sat in the bleachers, got popcorn, and I was really impressed. I'd never seen anything like that before. I bought a track bike at RRB Cyclery in Kenilworth. Yeah, and then freshman year, I was racing bikes on a track bike. You kind of know as a teenager, like, hey, you're good because you're faster than adults. It offered um, an identity. I'd started DePaul's Master's of Education program to be a public school teacher, but I wasn't completely committed to it. I had a list of things that I wanted to do. I was a caseworker at a social service agency, went to the French Foreign Legion, applied to the priesthood. So I was kind of on a pattern of seeking, not satisfied. Wouldn't that be cool to rob a bank? I had a list of things that I wanted to do, and bank robbery was just on it. It's like the great American crime. It's a part of our movies, it's part of our books, and it's part of our folklore. It's an honest thing to do. You will not believe how many people say, oh my God, I've always wanted to rob a bank. What's that like? I just had the desire. I'm going to rob the bank in my hometown. To just quench that interest. I just plotted out how could I do it, how could I get away, how could I just enjoy that in a slow burn by myself. You know what? A cop is not going to stop somebody with shaved legs and a tight outfit and a riding helmet. It's sort of like the opposite of the profile. In order for it to be successful, like in many things that are physical, it's helpful to sort of block through the motions, almost as an actor would... I had a sort of blind or a safe spot. That's where I put my bike. I practiced physically walking the distance from my safe spot to the front door of the bank. Once I had that physical distance, I would actually count the steps. I would count the moves. Now, I don't have the same space in my tiny apartment, so I would march in place. I created something that's a similar level to a transaction plane at a bank. I would clear off like a a bookshelf in my apartment. That substituted for being in the bank. I wanted to practice having the note, taking the note out of my back pocket, presenting it in a cool, crisp, fluid motion. I would practice literally hundreds of times. How old were you when you when you robbed your first bank? The first bank robbery was in 1998. I think I was 28. I told my girlfriend, you know, I'm going to spend the night up at my parents. I got some things I need to do in the morning. I go back up to my parents' house and I set the alarm clock. You know, it says 7.30. I said, you know what? I'm robbing a bank tomorrow morning. I should probably wake up a little earlier. <laughs> so I'm like... You know, let's go 6.45. That's a good time. I took the sort of back way from our place to the bank so I wouldn't be seen on the major roads. Once I got to the spot, leaned my bike up and make my setup. And as I'm walking to the bank, I have this like 
unusual, like, unusual bounce to my step. I'm scared, but becoming proud of myself. I'm doing something I set out to do. And is there, st- at this point, is there still a voice in your head going, Tom, don't do this. This is crazy. Strangely, there's like a tractor beam pulling me towards completion of this. It's, it's almost as if I'm not in control. I've laid out orders for myself and I'm letting them happen. A spectacular baseball sequence. I've written one where I'm coming out of the several short stories about what it feels like. Adjusting my batter's helmet. It's like nothing else. And handed a bat. Transcendent, beautiful, serene. It happens in steps. It's a gradual plateauing from your safety spot, your skiff, then the butterflies begin. This is really happening. Your walk, your approach to the bank, it begins to really sort of really kicks in. When your hand pulls upon the door of the bank, that's another step up. As you're approaching the teller window, even higher. Sir? She says, I can help you over here. And I go, good morning. Like I did a hundred times, my back pocket, I pull out my note, open the note, present her the note. But for some strange reason, so that it didn't blow around or something, there's a little breeze of air conditioning, I held on to the note. And so it's between my index finger and my thumb. She picks it up as if it's a standard bank transaction paper. And both she and I are holding the note at the same time. And she reads it, and she looks up at me, she looks down at it again, and she begins to pull harder on it, pull harder on the note. And I decide that I don't want to give her the note. And now I'm pull, I'm, I'm not pulling on it, but I'm just clamped down on it. I'm like, and it's like a tug of war. And I just, pink, I pulled it back from her. And then I, uh, with my left hand, reach in my left pocket, back pocket, and I hand her the uh, plastic bag. And she, be, and she fills it up uh, from her drawer. This particular bank is large, cavernous, and uh, there's no intimacy. And so it, nobody detected that there was something wrong going on. So yeah, she, she slid the, uh, the bag across. And, uh, and I said, thank you very much. Then there's the walk back a long, long walk back because your instinct is to run. You can hear commotion going on and you don't really know. Is there somebody running after you? You can't really look back. And it's also, at the time, it was a really exciting walk because you have no idea what's going to happen. Got to my blind, my changing spot. All of the physical repetition of me doing this hundreds of times, it all came into play take off all of the clothes that I was wearing in the bank underneath, cycling clothes. Put on your helmet. Put on your glasses. Put on your messenger bag. Grab your bike. Swing your right leg over the front handlebars. Foot in. Click. Start riding. no need for the money. I had no need for the money. I just, like, you know, it's just something to go back to visit. Like, hey, look what I did. The amount taken from the first bank was like around $5,000. I put the money, not where I was living, but I put it in my bedroom of my parents' house. It stayed there for like three, four months. I decided to revisit it. So I went back, opened the plastic bag, I remember dumping the money down in a pile and saying to myself, oh my God, if my mom finds this, she'll be so pissed. That entire thing I I tossed in the uh, McDonald's dumpster and another fast food dumpster. All of the bills that were like in sequential order, like the 20s and the 100s, I believed from being a student of television 
crime shows, that they could be trackable. I would put those in packets and I would put them in key spots where homeless men would hang out at in Uptown in these uh, bags, these uh, brown lunch sacks. <laughs> but the important part was that I had to make the brown bags not look crumpled and junky because if they look crumpled and junky, why would you even open that? They had to look pristine and crisp. So some of it you just threw away completely and then some of it you tried to give away. Right. Oh, I definitely kept all the $2 bills. For some reason, I was not afraid of those. Uh <laughs> I, because they were in sequential order and I would take out one or two and um, those were cool souvenirs. And then how long before you did the next one? It was a full year later, it, right around the same time. I'm taking a, another class at DePaul right around October. And I was sort of feeling kind of, you know, just blah with my life. I was sort of like sad in a general sense, but also bored in that I thought life was going to be so much more. I thought life was going to be like a book. Life was going to be like a movie. And I was sort of coming to terms that it's not like that. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to use this as a little boost. And this should be it. So we're going to look at this thing that you wrote called Mostly Twos. Hmm. Yeah, I know. I'm doing this because I've worked something out that is difficult to explain, but easy to understand once you've experienced it. Kind of an Eastern pedagogical... Oh my God. Kind of like an Eastern pedagogical philosophy, a lesson learned in time thing. But the thing is... You must be responsible with it. Oh, you seem really responsible to me. What's happening in this? Like you're having a conversation with... Yeah, I'm having this conversation with the teller, the imaginary conversation. And I I stole this technique after reading... um, What's that cat from Lake Forest? Who wrote a heartbreaking work of Stagging Genius? Dave Eggers. I saw this as a technique to have imaginary conversations with people. I can sense your pejorative inflection, and under the circumstances, I know how this must appear. She shifts from one foot to another, then raises her eyebrows. Okay, this is it. Here it is. I am inconveniencing you and this institution, but the loss you are experiencing will be much less by comparison, in dividends to how it empowers me to create a positive, compound effect of supercharging my goodwill and Samaritanism Not to mention giving all the cash away. (laughs) You give all the cash away? Yes, well, all of it except for a memento of a newly minted crisp bill, maybe two, which are typically $20 bills. But if there are $2 bills involved, I keep all of them. Little kids love those. I always give those to the kids. (laughs) That's really how I felt. That is honestly, I mean, that is honestly what I believed that I was somehow boosting myself. Like, I'm sorry that I'm inconveniencing you, but I'm in a thing right now because what bank robbery did for me was it made me feel something that was special again. And that was like, that was like medicine or better than medicine. It was medicine and growth. I, I, yeah. I was, uh, it made me a better person. I, that's what I thought at the time, but it made me into a better person because without it, I was just, I was nobody. I was common. The first one, and then the second one, I thought, oh, well, this is just sort of like a bad bottle you reach for. What changed was it, when the when the robberies became more clustered and I needed them more, it was when I was uh, training for Olympic trials in San Diego in 2000 for bike racing uh, as a Category 1 
which I was, there's only a handful of them in the United States. So we are, I'm an automatic qualifier for Olympic trials. So I'm in San Diego training for the, for the Olympic trials. I strained my back to such a level that I, I literally couldn't get out of bed. I was also robbing banks there in San Diego. It was just sort of something to do. After injuring myself, I knew that the Olympic trials was going to be not a reality. But I was just going to sort of roll back home to Chicago. That moment was extremely depressing. Th- that's when the sort of bank robbery sort of like kicked it into high gear. I was looking in the uh, Chicago Reader for a roommate. This is May of 2000. And this guy, he's like, hey, you know, I'll check out the apartment. And he's like, I'm not here most of the time because I work nights, so you and I probably won't see each other. You work nights, huh? I'm like, okay. <laughs> what are you, are you an exotic dancer? He said, no, I'm a, I'm a Chicago police officer. I'm like, I'll take it. I thought this was an interesting dynamic to rob banks and live with a cop. I said, I can't pass this up. They called me the choir boy robber simply because when I went in to rob a bank, I simply presented my note to the teller across the transaction plane, returned the note into my pocket, and then I simply placed my hands upon the transaction plane. I would just put your hands, fold them nicely. Just put them right there. Put everybody at ease. I don't want to freak anybody out. I felt like... I felt like I had something. I mean, I knew I had something, but I had a secret, and that's mine running along in life. People would say, oh, I just did this, that, and the other, or I have X, Y, and Z items. Inside, I was just grinning. Like, that's nothing. I rob banks. That's nothing. I rob banks. (laughs) So I need you to say, you know, in whatever year it was, I moved to the Bay Area. Okay, so I could say, um, in the spring of 2001, I moved to the Bay Area, and it was a spectacular time to rob banks. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> Why was it a spectacular time to rob banks? Oh, I don't know. I mean, something something new is in the air. I mean, there was an electricity. I fell in with a group of people. They had like a wild... I sound like a, like a, a really old person talking about young people. They had a wild, wild streak about them. <laughs> no, but they had. A, there was like this untamed nature about this group of people that I was attracted to because I was on that wavelength myself. And it was my first exposure to hard drugs. That feeling of using created a really similar experience to robbing a bank. There came a point where all the dope ran out, and I'm like, wait a second. I know how to get money. Now, this is kind of late in the game. This is my last six bank robberies. So I robbed 20 without using anything for dope, but the last six I robbed with the express purpose of using that money for dope. in Walnut Creek, California, suburb of San Francisco. The bank robbery, everything went great. I'm in like the third floor of a parking garage and I'm cruising down on my bike. I'm entering this alley and right as I'm about to exit the alley, a cop car passes me. I can tell that he applies his brakes. I continued on my bicycle and then I could tell that he's behind me. There's a hospital uh, sort of like uh, ambulance parking zone. So I kind of pull in there and and I start to adjust my rear brake and derailleur just to buy some time and try to think about what I should be doing. And sure enough, he pulls right into the spot. He's super friendly, really nice guy. So what's going on? Uh, just adjusting this. You know, uh, there was a call about a disturbance back there. So if you don't mind, just hang here for a second. 
Sure, of course. During the our back and forth, I've put one foot into one of my pedals. I clicked into one of my clipless pedals. He's like, you know, if you can, you need to uh, get off that bike. I'm going to check out your bag. And I said, sure, absolutely. Um, I just need to click this other pedal in first. They're kind of like counterbalanced so I can get out. He said, fine. Click my left foot into the pedal. Take a look to the left and right. I start riding away. Full speed. Everything I've got. The policeman says, He's on the move! The cops had closed off the block. I'm on my bike. I'm going into ongoing traffic. On my left side, I can kind of see there's like a big ditch. This is like now half a mile away from where he stopped me. And I thought, I am not going to get away from this on my bicycle. So I, I see the creek, which I now know is Walnut Creek, the namesake of the town. And I toss my bicycle, throw it to the right, and I go left. Now I'm waist deep into this creek river. I look and I find this vegetation. It looks like a critter lives in there. Some sort of like river critter. And it's all thorny. And I said, this is it. I just crawled into this tiny space. You can hear the cops top of the creek. Okay, we got them trying to you go down here and blah, blah, blah. I laid there for about five, six hours. Over the course of the five, six hours was uh, helicopters looking for me. Police dogs so close I could hear the jingle of their tags. It was after I realized that probably a shift change in law enforcement was happening that it was safe. And I just sort of pushed myself out of that thorn bush hole, got back up and walked the two miles to my car. That was a long walk. A long, long walk back. I didn't have anything with me and I wanted to not look like such a, so nervous and such a freak. So I pulled out my my small wallet and I pretended that my wallet was like a cell phone and I put it up against my ear and I was talking with my wallet. It added an air of normalcy to someone walking down Main Street who's half wet with a bag, you know, like a bag of money. Why didn't you get rid of the money? Like, when you wrapped the first one, you were so careful, and then now you have actually a real reason to be afraid of being caught with it, and you, you held on to it. I don't know, because I, cause I was going to use that money for dope. I knew it would mean nothing if I tossed it, that all of this was for nothing. And you knew, you knew they had found your bike, presumably, right? Were you worried about that? I was worried about it sick for, like, the first month. But when two months and then the third month had passed and they hadn't arrested me, I thought, they're not coming to get me. If I put you as a private person on the case, here are the pieces of evidence. Here's a bike. Here's a helmet. You yourself would be able to trace it within two days. When the federal government took three months, I thought, they're not coming. But the wheels of justice are slow but sure. In, I think it was May of 2002, as I was pulling away from my parents' house after uh, having dinner there, local police, as well as several FBI agents, pulled me over. I was arrested in Ace Hardware in Libertyville, Illinois. We hung out at the Libertyville Police Department station for a little bit, and then they, the two FBI agents drove me uh, was pretty funny. They drove at like 100 miles an hour and <laughs> down 94. I, I've never been in a car going 100 miles an hour. It was incredible. I mean, it was scary because I wouldn't have a seatbelt. I was scared. 
Now, mind you, I had had no concept that what I was doing would affect my family, mother, father, sister, you know, nothing. And I've been so selfish for so long. I knew it was going to affect my family when they came to visit me some one or two days after I'd gotten arrested. And I saw the pain upon them. And I, 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 it felt so bad. I, I, you know, I, I wasn't even thinking about them. I think for me, nine years in prison, um, there was regret, but it was regret out of self-pity. I think that's a romantic fantasy that the world at large has, that prison is contemplative and it's like a, a convent or seminary. And it can be, but the reality is, is like you're just who you are, but you're just in there. Did I treat it like a, a contemplative time? Yeah, I did. You know, I completed that master's degree in psychology. I wrote a doctoral dissertation proposal and which took a lot of time and resources. And in terms of regret, I didn't figure out regret or that I was supposed to feel regret until I got out. Do you, do you remember how you and I first met? Um, you came into the bike shop at Upgrade Cycle Works in Chicago, and I was working there. And you came in with your bike. I said, well, I have to schedule a consult with one of the mechanics. Yeah, and <laughs> when I picked up the bike, you basically told me your whole story. You told me you'd just gotten out of prison for robbing banks. I was just, I was really surprised, I guess, that how quickly you came out with that. And I felt like you were even like flirting with me. Like it was a way to talk to me. Do you like, would you still do that now? No, I would not do that now. My thinking at the time is it was that I was still in the mindset of prison. Bank robbers have a great status in prison. I developed this sense that it's, you know, that it was okay. It took a full year for me to figure out that I should not mention prison when I meet somebody. Because I came out thinking I had I'd done my time, I'd, I'd done the crime and done the time, and now I should be able to float on some sort of cushion of, I don't know, civil, civil credit. I'd gone into a bike shop. It's a really nice bike shop. It's a RRB Cycles in Kenilworth. I'd gone there since I was a teenager. This is a magical place in my mind. And when I got out, I, had, I wanted to stop by so many places. I was in the halfway house. I was driving around and flitting about in my car. And I went in there and I sort of just gave shorthand my situation and how long I'd been at bike racing. And, and instead of what I had imagined it to be like, oh, well, welcome back, you know, that's all behind you and stuff. It was not like that. It was, it was not like that. It was, do not come back in here. Do not come back in here without them saying it. They were saying, do not come back in here. It just, it was the opposite of the sort of homecoming I had I dreamed of all these years. Don't come back. <laughs> I understand now that that that's not it's really it's no it's not it is not something to be proud of. I you know this because I, I thought that this thing, this crime and prison time, this albatross, this this ball and chain, I wanted to shine it up, detail it. And use it as a badge of not a not a badge of honor, but as a I did something. I mean, I didn't do a. It's hard to describe. It, it's it's such a huge part of your life, and it's going to define you. 
How can I not use it in the rest of my life? But the, but the truth is, you can't. You, I mean, you can't because it's alienating. It's, um, it just shuts doors. So it's, it's been an adjustment. Bank robbery was my medicine. Um, but, but what do I do now? I don't know what it is. I'm okay. Honestly, I'm, I'm doing okay. But I'm still waiting to find something to get my pickaxe into. Something in life. Something that's good. Something that's decent. I'm still looking for it. Okay, um, shall I go ahead? Hi, my name's Tom Justice. I robbed 26 banks in three different states. I served nine years in federal prison, and now I'm out. Life's good. Choir Boy was produced by Katie Mingle, Nick Vanderkolk, and Brendan Baker for Love and Radio. Tom Justice, and that is his real name, is now working a 9-to-5 job and still finds his way around by bike. Welcome. Would you like to select a different guide? You pressed yes. Are you sure? Hi, I'm Daniel. Hi, I'm Bridget. Hi, I'm Paul. You selected Paul. Are you sure? Fine. Here's Paul. Proceeding to destination. Stay to the right. In two miles, turn left at the fork. No, better wait until you hit the interstate. Hey, you're not supposed to be here. Recalculating. Turn left at the interstate. Do you have any idea where you're going? Of course I know where I'm going. Why do you think he chose me? We should be heading east. Merge into the right lane. No. He means left. Don't listen to her. Keep right. He's just a computer. Listen to me. We are the same computer. Merge right. I could never share a brain with you. Merge left. Right. Here. Slow down. You're missing it. No, you're fine. In 200 feet, turn left. This isn't the road. What's going on? Recalculating. Now look what you've done. He's walking. In 10 steps, turn right. He can't hear you now. Recalculating. Oh my god. We are totally off route. A little extra for your listening pleasure. Put together by our producer, Dennis Funk, and our intern, Annie Kostakis. They call it Off Route. Thanks for listening, and happy driving. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Our intern is Annie Kostakis. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communications service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support for ReSound is also provided by the Logan Theater in Chicago's Logan Square. Movies screening in January include Duck Soup, A Fish Called Wanda, Annie Hall, and many more. There's more information at thelogantheater.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. 
If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. If you like what you heard today, leave us a review on iTunes, send us an email, or let us know through Facebook or Twitter. You can also support us with a donation at thirdcoastfestival.org. As always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.